Briefly, the commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Commandment from heaven. Do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. What does that mean? Have you broken the third commandment? Well, it means don't swear, don't curse, no cussing. Well, I think that's covered under the umbrella of the third commandment, but there's much more, much to be learned. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll dig in the third commandment. Our Father, we thank you for all who have come. We thank you for this opportunity for the broadcast to reach out around the world. We thank you for the word of God and his power, the Holy Spirit and his guidance. And we pray that we would give glory to thee by rightly dividing the word of truth. We pray that the whole counsel of God be declared for your glory for the advancing of your kingdom. We do ask for your grace extended to us, all of our errors and all of our ignorances and all of our needs. We would call upon the Lord to help because it is our desire to live lives of impact, of value, of uh, pleasing to God. And we pray for our country, Lord, that even now you would cause more and more souls to come submissive to the law of the Lord, longing to be reconciled to God, coming to comprehend the message of the gospel and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, as we continue, we pray that all the words would be pleasing to you, that you would cause the hearts of all of us to comprehend what the Lord would have us to learn today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, can we get these top lights here, please? The topic is understanding the third commandment. In review, I mean, why cover the commandments at all? We say there are many benefits from studying the law. The first is for understanding God. We remember that all that God gives in his law is an extension of himself. There's no contradiction, even in the slightest sense, between what is taught in the law and who God is. So the more we understand the law, the more opportunity we have to understand God. A second benefit is understanding ourselves as believers. We may feel we have done wrong here, done there. We come to the law, we find we have offended in many more ways than we had thought conceivable. And that can be very humbling. And it's good to be humbled before the Lord. And it's good for us to be instructed in the way of righteousness because the scriptures encourage you and me who are born again to be transformed into the image of Christ. So we understand God more. We understand ourselves more. We understand the lost more. And the lost hopefully understand themselves better. They are lost from, uh, have not yet been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. They may not believe they need to be saved. Well, the law is what God has given to convince all of us that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need the mercy of God. The Bible says the law causes every mouth to be stopped and all the world be found guilty before God. So, understanding God, understanding ourselves, understanding the lost, understanding the world. The scriptures are clear in telling us that the world is at enmity and contention against, fighting against, rebelling against the Lord. And so there's a rejection of his standards, of his declarations, of his commandments. People want to do what they want to do. 
So as we look at the rumblings of what's going on in our world, we learn more uh, from a biblical point of view than once we study the law. And then we, fifthly, we said, fifthly, and a benefit of studying the law is love, because love is the fulfillment of all the law. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength, and the neighbors thyself. So the right way to comprehend the law ultimately is to see it as a conduit of the love of God. Now, in layman terms, here's what we have learned so far. We looked at the first commandment. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we said simply this means we are to worship and serve the one true God. That's the first commandment. Worship and serve the one true God. Then last week we looked at the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And we said that this means ultimately don't misrepresent who he is. First of all, we say we are told choose the Lord, the one true God. Secondly, don't try to carve him into something he's not with your imagination or with any other tool that you have, any graven image. Don't transform God into somebody you find palatable or impresses you, this is the way that he is or this is what you want him to be. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And now this week, we go on to the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And in a simple statement, this means don't dishonor who he is. Have no other God. Don't try to take the true God and reshape him. And don't take him lightly. That's what the third commandment is about. Said positively, worship and serve the one true God. Embrace him. Not some figment of your imagination, but embrace him who he is. And thirdly, reverence him. Don't take his name lightly. Don't think it's some small thing to have your own little pet ideas of who God is and misconceptions. No, reverence him exactly as he is. There they are said again positively. Worship and serve the one true God. Embrace him, reverence him. Now, let's start with some preliminary observations. There is the text. Would you read it for me, with me, please? Exodus 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. In Exodus 20, verse 7. Let's note that verb, take. In the Hebrew, the, that verb could be translated carry. And in vain means in emptiness. Thou shalt not carry in emptiness the name of the Lord. In other words, you should not haul about abusively without proper respect. I remember in football we were told, don't carry that ball like it's a loaf of bread. There's a certain way that you carry it. And I think of how a person, let's say a clumsy father is carrying a baby in a way that's not respectful and that's dangerous. Don't carry your holding onto his leg like that. Don't throw him up in a way where you might drop him. Don't haul about without proper respect, without caution, without proper care. I was watching a video the other day about uh, a certain immigrant group that was used to do the explosions in uh, 
transcontinental railroad blasting through granite, and they would take this uh, nitroglycerin, which is extremely uh, easily explodable. Uh, it's really saying that awkwardly. But don't, don't drop it, don't shake it. You, that you can blow up. They say some 1,500 people of that group died during the blasting of the, uh, through the mountains, Rocky Mountains, and setting up the Transcontinental Railroad. Because it's so easy, you're carrying this explosive. Don't jiggle it, don't drop it. Be very cautious in how you handle it. And that's the idea behind this. The Word of God is precious. Don't be sloppy, don't be careless, uh, don't be uh, in any way disrespectful. Don't haul about the Word of God abusively without proper respect. And then the scriptures go on to say, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Why is that added? I think it is added to say, and no excuses here. Well, my grandpa, he always used God's name this way. I just didn't think about it. Or I didn't even know if that would be a wrong thing to say. When I first started lay preaching, the fellow came, knocked on my door one night and wanted to share how he was grieved with my preaching. And I said, why? And he said, because he used euphemisms for God. You say gal, you say gosh, things like that. And I, I hadn't been alert to it, hadn't thought about it back at that time in my life. But here's somebody who was discerning that I was not being rightfully respectful to the name of God. And that's what the third commandment is about. Whatever your excuse, there is no excuse. God will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in an empty, disrespectful, uh, unsubstantive way. No excuses. Now, a little outline I came up with. I thought this could be, we could just preach on this perhaps, but I'm just going to say this briefly. Do not abuse the name of the Lord to perjure. And that would be, as God is my witness, I never saw that person, never said this, they never did this. Don't bring God into a lie. So do not abuse the name of the Lord to perjure. Do not abuse the name of the Lord to conjure. That is, in God's name I call the spirits using the name of God to conjure up something in the spirit world. And thirdly, do not use, abuse the name of the Lord to injure. See a little outline there. As I was reading commentaries, I thought, don't perjure, don't conjure, don't injure. In other words, don't use the name of God as a curse word, as a swear word. Don't perjure, don't conjure, don't injure the word of God. Secondly, I just have three points. Let's go to a related issue. The commandment especially calls attention to be careful in our speech. And we are not inclined that way naturally. Remember what the scriptures say in the day of judgment. Men shall render account for every careless or idle word they've ever spoken. God records it. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat its fruit, the scriptures say. So this is the commandment which calls attention especially to be careful in our speech. So under its umbrella is therefore a prohibition of all sinful language. After all, God's speech is perfect. We're told in Proverbs 30 and verse 5, every word of God is pure. So perfection is our standard. See how far we fall short. But we are told in Matthew 5, 48, be therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So a growing Christian, one way you can discern whether he or she is growing is the improvement of speech, alertness to proper speech. So here is our command as expressed in the New Testament, Ephesians 4.29. There we are told, 
Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it might may minister grace unto the hearers. Ephesians 4.29. Let's take a look at a few of those words. The first is let. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. So proper speech is in our power now. There's a choice here. Don't you let that communication come proceed from your mouth. Why couldn't help it? I have no, no, you can. I'm telling you, don't let it, God says. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Indeed, we're told in James 1.26, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, that man's religion is vain. You got saved and you still speak the rotten way you did before you were saved, you probably didn't get saved. But we hear in James 1.26, salvation impacts the inside and out of the abundance of the inside you speak. If any man seems religious but doesn't bridle his tongue, he's deceived in his heart. His religion is vain. It's a lie. It's empty. So we're told, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Such a high standard. We have it in the New Testament as well, Ephesians 5, 3, and 4. But uh, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once. You'll say, well, I got once, twice, a few times. No. Here's the standard. Don't let it be once. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. And that's in keeping with who a saint is, has become a saint. In keeping with uh, one who is sanctified by the blood of Christ. Neither, now look at this list of speeches. Not filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient. Those are not in keeping with somebody who is devoted. God has a high standard. I tell you, this is a commandment of God. And we're supposed to raise up our standards more and more and more in how we speak. It's not fitting for a believer to speak filthiness or foolish talking or coarse jesting but rather should be giving of thanks. Let no corrupt communication. Next word is corrupt. And the word in the Greek there means rotten. It's used in the Bible to describe bad fruit and bad fish. Let no bad fruit or bad fish come out of your mouth. Corrupted, rotten. And rather instead we should do, uh, use uh, that which is good to the use of edifying. Edificare is the Latin verb. It means to build. And what you build is an edifice. And spiritually speaking, we are to speak in a way that builds other people up. That which is good to the use of edifying. That which builds up. That it may minister grace unto the hearer. Such immense power there is in words. You speak the right words. You stir up love and good works in other people. It's a means of ministering grace, God's grace, giving people the desire and the power to do his will through your words. No, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Have regard for speech. Now, the most thorough description of the power of the tongue is in James chapter 3. So let's, uh, let's turn there, please. If you would get to your, move to your Bibles. You don't have anything to put up on the wall there. I'd like us to read those first 12 verses, and then we'll go back and analyze them. James chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 12. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now that's kind of confusing in the King James. It means don't many of us choose to be teachers. 
Because if you're a teacher, you're supposed to have an especially high regard for the teaching and the words, and it should be transformative for you. And so you'll be held to a higher standard. And uh, God will judge. You knew this, you taught this, and you did not employ this. So be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation or judgment. For in many things we offend all. We all offend. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. So you're not going to control that tongue completely until uh, you've reached perfection. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts, birds, serpents, and the things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of fine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. What do we learn here? The tongue, first of all, has the power of direction. A bit may weigh a pound and can direct the course of a thousand-pound horse. A rudder, likewise, small compared to a huge chip that it can determine the course. A match can be the size of a toothpick, but it can cause a forest fire. All of these are to be compared with a tongue, just a little member, but it can cause, direct somebody to go some way, the whole body to go. Oh, the power of the tongue. We read in Ecclesiastes 5, 6, Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. The power of the tongue. Secondly, we see in James chapter 3, the plague of defilement. Chapter 3, verse 6, the second part. It's called a world of iniquity. Albert Barnes, the theologian, writes of those words, all kinds of evil that are in the world are exhibited there in the tongue in miniature. It seems to concentrate all sorts of iniquity that exist on the earth. Really a remarkable statement, isn't it? A world of iniquity, it defileth the whole body. Now that verb defileth means makes dirty, tarnishes, soils, pollutes, taints, debauches, everything. Third instruction of the tongue we get in James chapter 3, the impossibility of domestication. Verses 7 and 8. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. 
can tame even a lion or a tiger or an elephant. Some can, to some degree. The tongue, nobody can tame it. It's untamable. You know, there's only one other time I found in all the New Testament where that verb for tame occurs. That's concerning the demoniac of the Gadarenes. Remember that one who was possessed of all those devils and uh, they couldn't keep clothes on him and they put chains, he'd break the chains and constantly cutting himself and screaming. He could not be tamed. The only other place in the Bible where that same verb for tame occurs is in describing the tongue. The tongue is like, it's got that fellowship with the demoniac of the Gadarenes will not be domesticated. The fourth teaching we have from James chapter 3 concerning the tongue, the predicament of division. Verses 9 and 10. Therewith bless we God, even the Father. Therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth. And listen, this is written in a way to shock you, stun you. Can you believe this contradiction the kind of deal where we should respond, my friends, these things should not be. Should not be. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. So what it means is here's an absurdity. This is monstrous, shameful, disgraceful, scandalous, and unnatural as the sensual crimes in Romans 1.26. All that which is so disgusting, not even to be mentioned it is uh, unnatural. Same thing as what's being told here concerning the tongue. Oh, the Lord would have us to grasp the seriousness of this. I remember one time a, a fellow, he was an engineering manager where I used to work, and uh, he uh, cursed a lot, and I rebuked him because he's a Christian. And he said, well, I grew up in a military family, and I just got so used to it, I don't even think about it. And uh, my response was, think about it. Every one of us must think about it, clean up our act, Repent in any way we need to repent. And that leads us to the fifth point there, Romans, excuse me, James 3, 11 and 12, the purity of devotion. <clears throat> Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Is that our burden? That we have nothing bitter coming out of this mouth because we want it pure. Every word spoken to be pure. The purity of devotion. All that we could say with the psalmist as we read in Psalm 39, 1. I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle. By the way, we can't keep it ourselves, but we commit it unto the Lord. We cry unto him, set a watch over my mouth, keep the door of my lips. The power of God is able to restrain the tongue. But finally... It's time for us to look at applications. Our goal today is to learn what we can from the third commandment, which is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So let's conclude with a practical application to names of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how many names does he have? Depends who's counting them, I'm not sure. Some count up to 200 different names in the Bible for the Lord Jesus. I'd like us to look at just eight here as we conclude. Do we take our Lord's name in vain? Well, when I chafe at being looked down on by others, when I resist humbling situations, the Lord may allow me to undergo. Anybody here ever been in a humbling situation? Or when I look down on or disassociate myself from 
down and outers. When I put undue emphasis, wrong undue there, on external beauty, I am taking in vain the name of, let's see, what name would I be taking in vain? It would be this one, the Nazarene. That's one of his names, the Nazarene. We read, for example, in Matthew 2.23, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now that, you will not find that anywhere in the Old Testament, word for word, but the concept is there, for example, in Isaiah 53. What do we mean by this? It was an armpit of a town. It was a, it was a scummy, low uh, uh, um, sailor town with uh, vulgarities and uh, nothing beautiful about it in any way. God chose to have his son there in that town for a reason. And we'll read about it in Isaiah 53, starting with verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Or if you look at Nathaniel's response when he is told that uh, they have found the Messiah, and he's from Nazareth. Nathaniel's response in John 1 and verse 46 is, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And yet that's one of his names, the Lord Jesus' name, the Nazarene. And the point here is identification with the lowly. Willingness to suffer as a despised person. We read in Matthew 5 and verse 12, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now if someone were to say, uh, the heat in the kitchen, I'm out. Uh, I can't take being rejected by other people, people not liking me, not having honor, to dishonor me. To, I'm proud of who I am, my achievements. No, you missed the whole point, friend. Uh, because the Lord says, don't take my name in vain. You want to become like Christ? Then one of your names to honor is the Nazarene. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting with verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for, here it is, for the name of Christ. Happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Another application. We take the name of the Lord our God in vain, as the Nazarene. In 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. In like manner also women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Not haughty, taughty, uh, uh, proud, uh, vain, uh, materialistic. So it doesn't mean you can't uh, make yourself as pretty as the Lord would have you. But can you see how this would, could be taking the name of the Lord in vain? He, his name is Nazarene, and that means something for how we behave in public and how we dress. Secondly, when I get preoccupied with things that pass away, when I exclude Christ 
in any topic. When I live a life dominated by sin, I am taking in vain the name of, what would this be? What name of the Lord? The Alpha and Omega. The Alpha and Omega. The A to Z. The everything. We read in Revelation 22:13. that is one of his names. I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. We read in Colossians 1, starting with verse 16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. We read in Colossians 2.8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And then we read in Colossians 2.11, Christ is all and in all. Is he all in all to you? Can you exclude him from your thoughts and from your speech? Do you elevate him above everything in all cases? For he is the Alpha and the Omega. I take his name in vain when I don't concern myself with a vision for the future. Now, what name of Christ would that be? I don't concern myself with a vision for the future. Or when I don't put my shoulder to the work of the church. Or when I don't inquire what is God's pattern for action. When I, in any way, impede the work of God. I am taking in vain the name of, have you ever thought of this before? The carpenter. That is one of his names. The carpenter. He's the blue-collar worker. He's the one who knows what can become. He knows by taking stuff, salvage this, you can build it into being that. And he follows the pattern. And he's a worker. He puts his shoulder to the work. He's called this in Mark 6, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon... Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. The carpenter. One who sees what can be done. John 1 verse 42. When Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. I've shared with some of you one time as a young person, I was playing baseball, and a basketball coach came up to me and he said, I'm going to make a ball player out of you. He had this vision for me to become a certain kind of athlete as I grew up. Jesus is saying this concerning Peter. I have a vision for you. You are going to become a stone, a rock, a fountain. You are going to be a means of stability for the others. I'm going to build you into being somebody. John 1, verse 42. So one who builds. John 1, verse 3, all things are made by him, and without him not anything made that was made. Let's go on to another one. We're going to do eight in total, and then we're done. I'm taking the Lord's name in vain when I do not give due thought to God's presence. I can spend time and not even think, not be aware of, not be sensitive to, not be reverent concerning the presence of a holy God. When I do not give due thought to God's presence or I do not enjoy 
his presence, or I'm not courageous, or I follow, I fellowship with sin. I take the Lord's name in vain, for his name is Emmanuel. We read in Matthew 1.23, Behold, a virgin shall be a child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which we interpreted is God with us. Don't handle that, carry that about sloppily, carelessly, that God is with you. God is with us. We read in Joshua 1, verses 5 and 6, I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage. Next, I take the Lord's name in vain when I live a life burdened by guilt. Or when I have insufficient appreciation for innocence. Or when I doubt the uniqueness of the Christian faith. For I dishonor the Lamb. John 1, 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And we read in Revelation 5, you know, on Wednesday nights we have prayer meetings. We encourage people to spend a certain amount of time worshiping, adoring the person of God himself. And uh, if you come short of words or dispositions, memorize this text, or at least verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You've got a whole five minutes of worship right there. Just go through those one by one. Anyway, we read in Revelations 5.11, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and under the Lamb forever and ever. Yes, he who takes away all sin. Oh, we feel guilty for our sin. Sometimes that can be the accuser of the brethren, the devil himself, continually causing us to be plagued with a sense of unforgiveness. But that takes in vain the name of the Lamb. Blessed is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Happy are all those who trust in him. Let me repeat this one. I take the Lord's name in vain when I live a life burdened by guilt or I have insufficient appreciation for innocence, the Lamb is innocent, or when I doubt the uniqueness of the Christian faith, it is he who takes away the sin of the world and none other. A couple more. I take the Lord's name in vain when I live a defeated life. For I dishonor Jesus. Luke 1, 30, 31. The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. The Lord saves. We read in Acts 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Oh, friends, is it not time to evaluate ourselves in the light of the third commandment? 
Say it again with me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. May we pray. Lord, if this were just human logic or human words, then there would be no lasting impact. But if this is indeed the word of God, and the Spirit of God can work through the Word of God, then maybe this lady, maybe that man, maybe this boy, maybe that girl, maybe this family can be impacted by a study of this, the commandment of God. Oh Lord, let that be the case. Perhaps there's a soul who has not yet trusted in Jesus as Savior. May this be the day. Perhaps there are those who've been careless in speech or not reflective on the names of God. May this be the turning point so that we pray all of us would be transformed and that we would be perfect even as our Heavenly Father is perfect and that no corrupt thing, no corrupt speech proceed out of our mouth but that which is good to the purpose of edifying that it may impart grace to the hearers. And this we ask in the name of our Savior, in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.